you very much to this prestigious global panel for joining us for master series, Venus Ulceration, making the best decisions for your clinical patients. And it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Monica Glavitsky and Dr. Mark Milin, who are our co-chairs for this event today. Thank you very much to you both for joining us. Thank you for hosting, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. And thank you very much to this global panel for taking the time uh, to discuss this very important clinical topic with us today. Thank you for the invite. Thank you for hosting us. Pleasure. Great, so I'll hand over to our co-chairs for today's exciting program. Uh, we are delighted to, to start this session uh, to, to help people to improve the uh, venous ulcer care. And we will start with the, uh, uh, our presentation. Thank you, Monica. And I'd like to, again, uh, express my sincere appreciation and the uh, privilege and honor of being able to present with uh, distinguished colleagues from across the globe. We also want to take this opportunity to thank our uh, sponsors, Ergo, located in France and the United States as well as a row of biosurgery located in New Zealand. So we truly have an international uh, panel as well as an international support for Wound Masterclass. And Megan, with that, we'll uh, start the presentations. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. So over right. now to Dr. Meelan for our next segment of the master series. Dr. Meelan, thank you again for coming to talk to us about such an important topic. Well, Megan, thank you for putting together a Wound Masterclass, and it's certainly a, a, a grand opportunity to be able to participate in education with such esteemed colleagues. So my topic is to discuss the venous leg ulcer pathophysiology from the micro influence upon the macro influence, my relative disclosures. So like an airplane pilot, I think it's important to run a typical venous leg ulcer checklist so that we can maximize outcomes. And you'll hear in some of the later presentations uh, this typical type of consistency in terms of treatment so that we can maximize how patients are treated, both improving accelerated closure as well as maximizing decreased recidivism for these patients that typically have high recurrence rates. One of the important things is making sure that there's adequate arterial blood flow. In current demographics, about approximately 20 to 25% of people do have some component of either diabetes or metabolic syndrome, which can compromise both microvascular as well as macrovascular um, arterial flow. So making sure that an ankle brachial indice with the toe brachial indice is performed is critical. I would advise you to open those actual studies, look at the waveforms because you know the patient the best, and then assess it within the concept of an angiosome. So in a patient like this, we're dependent upon uh, posterior tibial and perineal artery perfusion to heal a wound like this. So if the anterior tibial and the dorsalis pedis are patent, there may not be adequate blood flow, even with a normal ABI in that region. So make sure and correlate that and certainly consult your vascular surgery colleagues early and often about these very challenging, difficult patients to make sure that we uh, don't miss this in terms of the performance. Venous competency ultrasound is critical. Dr. Uh, Peter Klovitsky will address this later, both to look at saphness as well as non-saphness reflux, the anterior accessory, small saphness, as well as uh, perforator status. And we know from data produced from the EVRA study and the ESCAR study that we should be treating axial and uh, non-axial venous reflux early and often in these cases, rather than trying to get the patient to heal without managing the venous hypertension. A nutrition evaluation typically falls way down on the checklist. I'm moving it purposely number to number three, 
because we know that the micronutrient components to maximize nitric oxide production, which improves lymphatic function, microarterial vasodilatation and venous tone and immune function all are incredibly beneficial to these patients who oftentimes may be micronutrient deficient. We especially in our clinic focus on the B vitamins, so B12, B6, folate, high dose vitamin C to help with uh, decreasing um, uh, reactive oxygen uh, species and uh, antioxidants. Now, one caveat on vitamin C is that if the patient has a history of uh, renal stones, you might want to uh, be careful on the vitamin C and discuss with the primary care physician. Vitamin D can also have an impact not just on bone health, but on microvascular perfusion. Arginine certainly contributes to nitric oxide production and micronized purified flavonoid fractions are uh, very important, as you'll hear multiple times during these presentations. One new way to look at albumin is not necessarily as a marker of overall nutritional health, but it's actually a component of something we're going to talk about shortly called the endothelial glycocalyx. It helps as a permeability layer. So actually, when the albumin is low, we may see increased levels of microvascular hyperpermeability. This can influence, influence subcutaneous edema, which can compromise microvascular arterial perfusion, as well as immune function. We'll get a little bit more into that coming up. Certainly look at the medication list because medications like amlodipine, also known as Norvasc or other calcium channel blockers can contribute directly to lower extremity edema. We typically will always stop amlodipine in our clinic to maximize edema control. Patients that are going through chemotherapy or on hydroxyurea, these certainly can inhibit uh, long-term uh, healing. Hemoglobin A1Cs, good hyperglycemic control is important in management of these ulcers. Again, hyperglycemia can shed this very fragile layer called the uh, endothelial glycocalyx that can result in more edema. We typically see this in almost all diabetic foot ulcers do have a lymphedema dysfunction component uh, as, uh, as part of the inhibitory component to why DFUs have a difficult time healing. And don't miss the biopsy. Uh, Lee Rhodes, Ro is gonna go into this, but in this atypical versus typical ulcerations, if we miss a atypical, such as a malignancy or uh, pyoderma gangrenosa and treat it as a typical venous leg ulcer, we're not gonna have very good outcomes. Uh, biofilm management, you're gonna hear some of the discussion of this from Dr. Abby Schaffen. And we're really focused on driving down wound pH. Chronic wounds are on a pH of 7.15 to 9.0. The acid mantle of normal dermis is 5.5. We know through peer-reviewed uh, validated data that decreasing wound pH can help with decreasing biofilms, improve angiogenesis, and improve uh, accelerated epithelialization in concert with other types of uh, uh, adjunctive modalities. Compression is critical. All of these patients that are a C6, so based on the CEAP classification, we know have associated lymphatic dysfunction and lymphedema. So it's important upstream to get certified lymphedema therapists involved, begin utilizing inelastic. Uh, we use inelastic Velcro only because it's easy to get on and off over top of um, uh, dressings. And don't forget about both a foot component as well as a calf component. Patients will often say, well, my shoes don't fit when I'm wearing the Velcro component. It's a critical component. Uh, aspect of getting patients to heal, especially from the um, malleolar region distal, and especially where there may be incompetent perforators that can be identified with venous, or venous competency duplex ultrasounds. The other thing that we use oftentimes is a fuzzy whale interface. It's called edemaware. This does micro MLD-like impact upon lymphatic, uh, um, upon the lymphatic dermal um, distribution, and 70% of our lymphatics are actually in the dermis. So activating the dermal lymphatic component will really help drain the, um, the skin of its uh, edema and help accelerate 
healing. Cost-effective wound bed modulation, we'll touch here on ovine foregut as uh, Dr. Schaffen talks about uh, also. And of course, tobacco has to be ceased, including vaping. So with the biofilm management, we use a hypochlorous uh, acid called Vosh. It has a stable shelf life of approximately 18 months, pH of 5.5. It's non-cytotoxic for wound and peri-wound environment, decreases inhibitory wound bed pathogens, and it's a standard of care in our institution uh, in conjunction with negative pressure wound therapy after surgical debridement to maximize, again, lowering that wound pH and uh, not having recurrence of biofilms. It's applicable to all wounds. We've used it in pyoderma, diabetic foot ulcerations, and traumatic wounds. Now, in terms of uh, the extracellular matrix we favor, it's ovine foregut matrix, also known as myriad, is the form I use in the operating room versus antimicrobial endoform or standard endoform in the, in the clinic. More cells is another option that we have on our surgical card. It's a structured retention of architecture from the foregut of the uh, of young sheep, typically less than 12 years old. Of course, uh, the stomach in a sheep has to heal very quickly to maintain health of the animal. So the ovine foregut matrix has a diverse array of collagens, including one, two, three, and five. And then it has a very diverse abundancy of uh, glycoproteins, proteoglycans, uh, glycosaminoglycans, and all of these factors over 150 that have been detailed are preserved through a very specific process as well as retention of angiogenic channels. And it's incredibly cost-effective at approximately 10 to $15 per square centimeter. One of the uh, validated studies that was produced in the last couple of years by doctors uh, Dempsey and May demonstrated actually uh, all the way down to the level of the decorin component that's on the end of collagens and the end terminus of that component actually results in localized mesenchymal stem cell recruitment. So you're actually getting autogenous stem cell recruitment from localized tissues to help in terms of tissue reconstruction. And we know the immune system is a critical component of of uh, tissue reconstruction, and the immune system works best when the lymphatic system is working as well. So I'm going to bring up the lymphatic component right away so we don't forget about this, because we all think about venous hypertension and venous leg ulcers, but in our clinic, we really try to focus on decreasing interstitial edema, maximizing lymphatic functionality, because if we do that, we're also getting immune function enhancement, as well as uh, by decreasing subcutaneous edema, we can maximize microvascular arterial perfusion at the five micron level. So if you look at peri-wound lymphatic stasis, it's occurring in almost every wound we see in the wound clinic. So that epiboly we see in in uh, wounds that is actually built up lymphatic stasis. And when lymphatics are static, the immune system doesn't function well, there is increased subcutaneous edema, and this has a direct negative impact on wound resolution. So by maximizing peri-wound lymphatic stasis resolution, we can improve overall wound healing. And from Australia, Dr. Suwami and colleagues had published in 2018, this really excellent map of lymphosomes within the body. And this is a paper I would suggest you all bring up because if we understand the lymphosomes in the body, we can more focus, much like angiosomes, on accelerating wound care. If we compare the lymphangiosomes, again, if you, the robustness of it within the groin is incredible. So any groin surgical procedure, we want to try as much as possible to preserve this network of lymphatics. If we look at the anatomy from the epidermis down to deep tissues, the lymphatic capillaries in the size of the 20 to 70 micron level are really the critical nature of stimulating then into the pre-collectors and the superficial system 
where we can ultimately then get lymphangion contractility. Once we get lymphangion contractility in the subcutaneous tissues, it actually draws down the edema within the dermis. Drawing down the edema within the dermis is what helps to maximize wound resolution. And from the study that was published by Cubic et al., I believe this was in 1998, this just shows the density of the ventromedial bundle along the leg. So going from the ankle on the left, all the way up to the groin on the right. And this is right along with the saphenous vein is. So I think back to when I was doing surgical stripping of saphenous veins and how often I contributed to a patient's lower extremity lymphedema simply by disruption of this vast lymphatic component. And I know from Steve Dean's uh, article that was published in Journal of Vascular Surgery a couple of years ago. He looked at causation of lymphedema in patients. We know that even in uh, patients undergoing total knee arthroplasty, this is a leading cause of subsequent secondary lymphedema, as is chronic venous insufficiency. And of course, cancer is another ex extensive one. This is a patient I debrided recently in the clinic. And again, you can just see these dense epidermal lymphatic distended capillaries that are all lymphatic stasis. So this density of lymphatic, it's, it's like a carpet or a shag carpet. We don't want to see this in our patients because this results in non-resolutions of wounds. So by uh, getting certified lymphedema therapists involved, again, we use a lot of edemaware as a dynamic dermal interactive component with Velcro inelastic or compression. We must reduce the edema component to maximize wound outcomes. This shows what negative pressure therapy can do in terms of dermal lymphatics. Again, it helps to open up those interstitiuses between the lymphatic capillaries, and it's almost like opening up the uh, a drain. The fluid literally will will flow down, and when it gets into the then the subcollectors, that's where you get lymphangion uh, distension, and that diastolic contractility then kicks in, much like diastolic contractility within a heart, and then we get lymphangion contractility. So it's a very positive reinforcing cycle once we get the dermal lymphatic reduction started. Laura Santambragio, who now is up at uh, Wheel Cornell, has done some very um, uh, excellent and visionary work in terms of looking specifically at lymphatic function, the lymphatic proteasome, as well as the lymphatic glycocalyx. And I know Joe Raffetto and um, uh, Stanley Roxon just recently published with some colleagues from uh, Italy on the first identification of glycocalyx within a mesenteric sample of, a, of an actual human. So this is really exciting visionary work to talk about actually uh, the glycocalyx within the lymphatics. This is from our colleagues down at NASA, Sarah uh, Zwart and Scott Smith, uh, just to talk about exactly what's going on in the microvasculature. And if we look at the, the ratios of BH4 to BH2, this ultimately leads to L-arginine utilization to maximize nitric oxide. Again, the nitric oxide has really significant importance in terms of vasodilatation, immune functionality, as well as lymphangion contractility. So when we have fluid leakage at the microvascular level, this is what stuns the entire system. So to introduce the role of the healthy glycocalyx, again, this is throughout the entirety of the 60,000 miles of the vasculature of the human body, which has about 3 trillion endothelial cells. And think of it as epic. So there's endothelial cell function. The primary cause or primary causation is nitric oxide production. It's the permeability or sieving barrier, much like a Gore-Tex layer. It helps manage coagulation and it helps manage inflammation. So all of these functions are critical to vascular functionality as well as organ health. And we know from the study produced out of uh, Portugal that 
when we think of venous insufficiency predisposing factors, we always talk about environment, we always talk about genetics, but one of the underlying factors that's now recognized is a glycocalyx injury that can increase inflammation and again, result in difficulty, uh, not only healing, but high recidivism rates. This is out of a blood-brain barrier model only because we don't have a VLU capture of the endothelial glycocalyx uh, in injury, but this just again looks like uh, uh, drier lint literally within vessels. So when it's shed, it's totally gone. When it's present, this is the functional component that helps us in terms of healing. Think of the glycocalyx like a, like a computer analogy. So it has hardware, software, and a power source. The hardware mm -hmm. is the, that drier lint that's composed of glycoproteins, proteoglycans, glycosaminoglycans. The power source is as fluid flows back and forth across that drier lint, it stimulates production of these factors that's known as mechanical transduction. Ultimately, this is what helps in terms of overall healing. So restoration of the glycocalyx through many forms can be done. And I think we're learning more and more about options. This is just a very detailed study again, to demonstrate that with that sheer stress across endothelial cells, components of the glycocalyx help produce nitric oxide, but it also decreases reactive oxygen species. So we actually get both benefits by the glycocalyx. And then this paper, again, demonstrates that concept I was just talking about how when we get shear stress, we get increased uh, production of nitric oxide. And again, this is a systemic, a regional and a systemic effect. So we get both uh, um, uh, positive outcomes. When we lose the glycocalyx, not only do we lose nitric oxide production, we also lose quenching of reactive oxygen species. This leads to that direct inflammation component. This is just another 2022 study that demonstrates the robustness of the almost Amazonian-like forest components where there's vertical stratification as well as longitudinal stratification. Again, heparan sulfate, albumin, chondroitin sulfate, hyaluronic acid, all these are very important components of the glycocalyx that could be shed under various circumstances, including venous hypertension, sepsis. They've even demonstrated that COVID has an impact on the glycocalyx. In this uh, final study, this is just a study that came out of Northeastern University that I was privileged to be a part of this team looking at the diosmin effect. Diosmin has spared in being a component of micronized pyroglide flavonoid fraction. This was in a carotid model of a, of a mouse, but this just demonstrates that diosmin correlates positively with glycocalyx coverage of endothelial cells as demonstrated by multiple validated labeling uh, components. A lot more work needs to be done in this area. And I just uh, wanna thank uh, Dr. Ebong again at Northeastern University for the privilege of participating in this study. In final, run the checklist for venous leg ulcers. Don't miss identification of peripheral arterial disease. Again, growing demographics with diabetes and metabolic syndrome in our population. Don't undertreat lymphedema, recognize malnutrition and treat it appropriately and not just the protein component, but the micronutrients components. Do venous ultrasounds early. That should be one of the first things that we're ordering when we see patients. We wanna make sure as uh, uh, Lee, Rotos, Lee Roach is gonna talk about, identify the atypical, so we're not treating them like a typical venous leg ulcer. Look at the medication list and modify those that contribute to lower extremity edema. And help patients to wean themselves and get off of uh, tobacco. Wound bed modification with hypochlorous acid. In our clinic, we're using Bosch to, to maximize biofilm management, decrease wound pH to 5.5, and then ECM modulation. Again, we use uh, a lot of ovine foregut as our extracellular matrix, 
um, cost beneficial and a lot of validated data to help support both from the microvascular level to the macrovascular level in terms of uh, wound modification and healing. And then add P MPFF, so micronized purified flavonoid fractions consistently into both venous leg ulcer management as well as lymphedema management. And we're also now starting to see some data in terms of uh, helping with diabetes management. Again, more research to be done. Megan, with that, I'd like to again thank you uh, and your team for the uh, privilege of participating in today's educational seminar. Thank you very much, Dr. Meelan. That was a really comprehensive guide looking at the micro to macro and all the, the considerations that perhaps are often missed um, when people are considering management of chronic venous disease. Um, we move on to our next speaker now, who's Dr. Lee Rotsi, who's going to take us down into an overview of atypical presentations. My thanks to uh, Negan Shamsian uh, and the rest of the Wound Masterclass team, uh, as well as Drs. Monica Glovitsky and Mark Moline, the co-chairs of this program, uh, for the privilege of uh, being here with this wonderful interdisciplinary panel. Uh, my, uh, my challenge this morning is to describe to you in about 11 minutes uh, the differential diagnosis of lower extremity uh, ulceration. So we'll, uh, we'll take a whack at that and uh, see how we do. So here are uh, my disclosures. I come from Saratoga Springs, this nice little horse community at the foot of the Adirondacks in upstate New York. And here are the players uh, briefly. And again, this, this is uh, by necessity a 30,000 foot view of the differential diagnosis of uh, lower leg ulcers. We could spend an hour on this just as all of the panelists could spend an hour on their topics. So basically arterial insufficiency, venous insufficiency, lymphedema, and the atypicals. So I, a while ago I got to, to thinking about uh, lower extremity ulcers in the context of Occam's razor, which says that with all things being equal, the simplest explanation tends to be the right one. Well, the fact is with lower extremity ulceration is the vast majority of common and atypical wounds occur with great frequency on the lower extremities. So I'm not a particularly clever guy, but I did say that the simplest explanation for a lower extremity wound is often not the right one. So to Mark's point earlier, run your VLU checklist because with the prevalence of venous leg ulcers being as high as they are, it's easy to walk into that room and say, that patient needs multi-layer compression and uh, that's the end of it. So, but there's so much else down there. We really, we, we need to think out of the box on this. So venous leg ulcers, of course, begin with the feet and ankles, progress up the leg as venous hypertension and time progress. Varicosities develop. This is worse after prolonged standing or activity. Uh, aching discomfort improved after rest and elevation. This dramatic hyperpigmentation, the hemosiderosis, uh, from extravasated uh, red blood cells and the breakdown of hemoglobin, chronic inflammation of, and fibrosis of skin, which is often mistaken for cellulitis. The, the um, uh, morphology of, of uh, venous leg ulcers, they, they, they tend to be irregularly shaped, full thickness ulcerations with moderate to large exudate, typically not exposed to underlying bone, tendon, or other structures. 
general treatment guidelines, vascular workup. Again, to Dr. Malin's point, the venous insufficiency study to get that roadmap of where these veins are refluxing. Make sure that you obtain an adequate arterial workup, that you're assured that ankle brachial indices and toe brachial indices are adequate to support that gold standard of uh, multilayer compression. Arteriograms, CTA, MRA, according to your judgment. Compression therapy, again, multilayer uh, compression considered the gold standard, but we have to remember that both our clinically applied compression and the post uh, closure documents or garments, sorry, that the uh, uh, patients wear at home, we have to tailor those to the patient's uh, life status. Leg elevation, management of the wound, exudate management. Remember, you know, one of those silly acronyms, drainage drives dressing decisions. We've got to manage drainage and then management of the surrounding skin. Lymphedema, uh, a common presentation to outpatient wound centers. A problem is commonly lymphedema presents with open wounds and the challenges are, are many. Most outpatient wound centers, number one, are poorly equipped to manage lymphedema. And number two, many lymphedema providers and clinics are unwilling to accept uh, patients with open wounds. So we find ourselves in that dilemma uh, that we need to get these lymphedematous wounds closed before the lymphedema can actually uh, be managed appropriately uh, with the, the skill and technique that can really only be provided by lymphedema therapists. Arterial insufficiency ulceration. So the clinical features, they tend to be uh, punched out with well-defined edges, almost as though you, you created the wound with a, with a, with a drill bit. They, they tend to occur over distal pro, bony prominences, the wound beds tend to have uh, sort of an unhealthy and pale granulation tissue appearance. They tend to be fairly dry, minimal, minimal exudate, uh, black to brown eschars. The surrounding skin tends to be ruberous and hairless. So this, this photo on the upper right is sort of that typical um, uh, ischemic lower leg, that shiny red ruberous hairless uh, skin. In terms of management of arterial insufficiency ulceration, you know, make the diagnosis and then get the patient to somebody who can fix the problem. Uh, Dr. Chaffin said, no flow, no go. You know, we, we all know that to be the case. We're not gonna get any wounds healed if there is not an adequate arterial supply. So again, you know, run that VLU checklist, think out of the box, and, and make sure that you make that diagnosis of arterial insufficiency in a timely fashion. The workup, pulse exam with a Doppler, don't rely on your fingers, use a handheld Doppler, MRA, CTA, uh, cautious debridement, especially in the ischemic limb, uh, protective moist wound care, and here's uh, just a, a, little, uh, a little pearl from my, my world with the National Pressure Injury Advisory Panel, do not debreed dry, stable, heel eschar. Leave it alone, let it demarcate. Um, and again, um, Dr. Moline made such a good point about becoming facile with interpreting these lower extremity arterial Doppler studies. 
the the interpretations that you receive the dictated interpretations don't count on them always being accurate and reliable learn what all these numbers mean and certainly we don't have time to go over them today but this this graph is a wealth of uh information thromboangitis obliterans also known as burger's disease this is an arterial clotting in the hands and feet with a resultant ulceration in gangrene. It's uh, uh, pathophysiologically, it's a vasoocclusive inflammatory vasculopathy where these inflammatory thrombi occlude vessels but spare the vessel walls. The critical catalyst for Berger's disease is cigarette smoking. You don't get to make the diagnosis uh, of uh, TAO or Berger's disease um, in a patient who is not a cigarette smoker. Vasculitis. Uh, vasculitis can certainly occur in any organ system. However, interestingly, the skin is the most common organ system affected. The bilateral lower legs are the most common location. The, the typical description is a painful palpable purpura. And you can see by looking at these photos that you know, those are really palpable. Uh, biopsy for diagnosis, uh, biopsying the most immature of the areas will lead to the highest return in uh, diagnosis. And leukocytoclastic or um, uh, in, inflammatory vasculitis is the most common form of cutaneous vasculitis. Scleroderma, most commonly the Crest syndrome. Scleroderma, also sometimes known as progressive systemic sclerosis, an autoimmune disorder of unknown etiology, ulcers usually over the digits, pretibial area, and bony prominences. One of the most troubling features of uh, this uh, uh, disease process is the subcutaneous calcification known as calcinosis cutis. And you see those yellow areas around the periphery of these uh, wounds. So sometimes uh, those uh, areas are able to be distracted or extracted almost like dental uh, extractions. But getting these wounds to uh, epithelialize is a real, really difficult. And if you look at a plain film of somebody with calcinosis cutis, there will be um, a shelf of this calcification that extends well beyond the wound margins. Pyoderma gangrenosum, I feel as though this is the most typical of the atypical uh, lower extremity ulcerations. Painful ulcers of varying depth and size, purulent wound bed, and a blue-black um, uh, violaceous wound edge. Uh, uh, PG is most commonly associated with underlying autoimmune and occasionally malignant, malignant disease. The most common uh, um, association is with inflammatory bowel disease, such as ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. Systemic corticosteroids, other disease-modifying agents, such as cyclosporin, often used uh, in the treatment. Uh, a very important concept with pyoderma gangrenosum is that of pathergy, where if you sharply debride these ulcers, they grow larger. Malignant skin lesions, basal cells, squamous cells, and melanomas all occur with remarkable frequency uh, in the lower extremity. So really important, again, to, to 
look carefully at these things that present to us on the lower extremity, make sure we're not missing something. Uh, just a word on Margolin's ulcer, uh, a sort of an unusual form of squamous cell or occasionally basal cell carcinoma. Uh, Margolin's ulcers were uh, originally described by uh, Jean Nicolas Margolin in the late 1700s in France described it as a squamous cell cancer arising in an area of prior skin trauma. Here in America, we have colloquially called these uh, scar carcinomas or burn carcinomas. We now know these to be roughly 80% squamous cell and 20% basal cell. The picture you see here was a 73-year-old lady uh, who uh, uh, presented to our clinic with a large venous leg ulcer in an area where she had had prior venous leg ulceration. And if you look at the entire area of this, it was just a fairly typical looking venous ulcer. Um, uh, she was quite mobility impaired, so I arranged for home nursing care and brought her back in four weeks for a follow-up. When she came back, she had this odd looking area in the superior aspect of the wound, I biopsied that and uh, it turned out to be a poorly differentiated squamous cell carcinoma. So this lady's prior area of skin damage ended up being her recurrent venous leg ulcers. So, you know, there's always something hiding around the corner to bite you if you're not, uh, um, uh, if you're not paying attention. So, uh, you know, biopsy early and biopsy often, uh, there are very few wounds that you're going to hurt with a five millimeter punch biopsy. Don't forget diabetic foot ulcer, please. Five year mortality of neuropathic DFU is almost 50%. Vascular assessment is of critical importance. Remember the trineuropathy. We always think of the sensory neuropathy, but remember we have the motor neuropathy that leads to the bony deformities and then the autonomic neuropathy that leads to the dry uh, foot that leads to fissuring and cracking. Infection and osteomyelitis are common. Offloading, total contact casting, uh, removable cast boots of primary importance, appropriate wound care and debridement, and then of course, glycemic control. Um, just closing here, um, the most common reason for folks with venous leg ulcers to get admitted to the hospital is with a diagnosis of cellulitis. So this picture on the right, is a photo of a man that I saw in consultation. He had been admitted through the ER with bilateral lower extremity cellulitis. Normal white count, afebrile, no systemic symptoms, perfectly well demarcated, symmetric bilateral lower extremity erythema. What are the chances that that's gonna be cellulitis? Just about zero. The picture on the left, however, that's, that's real cellulitis. So what's this? Brain foot? I thought it was. Anyway, um, Voltaire said common sense is not so common. Uh, this is two days after a man decided to take a long, comforting hot shower with his total contact cast on and came in for us uh, two days later. And this is what we saw on his heel when we removed the cast. With that, I thank you. It was a privilege to be here with all of you. Thank you so much, Dr. Rodsky. That's really uh, an amazing talk. You know, there's a difficult topic, the atypical versus the typical presentation. Dr. Kulvitsky, thank you for honoring us with your presence.
Good morning and good evening, everyone, wherever you are around the world. Uh, greetings from sunny Arizona. And uh, uh, I'm uh, delighted to be part of this uh, distinguished panel talking about uh, venous ulcers and uh, particularly talk about interventions for treatment of uh, chronic venous insufficiency in patients with venous leg ulcers. I have no conflict of interest. I think we all know that chronic venous disease is a huge uh, spectrum of medical conditions. It's, this is one of the most prevalent uh, medical conditions in the world. Uh, it affects 25 to 40 million Americans. Uh, and of course, most of these patients have uh, varicose veins, but there is a, a, a number of patients and uh, we know uh, probably uh, uh, two to four million or even more who have advanced uh, chronic venous insufficiency and up to one million uh, patients, depending on which statistics you look at, have venous ulcerations. And with the uh, increasing age, we are going to see more uh, venous ulcerations. We know and we talked about the economic burden of venous ulcers, and we know a little bit more uh, about the epidemiology. Uh, although it affects elderly patients more frequently, there is a significant economic burden because of uh, loss of working days of uh, uh, people who uh, are active workers. And uh, it's not infrequent, but we see that these patients need to go uh, and uh, uh, have early retirement, and they certainly have a reduced uh, quality of life. The Society for Vascular Surgery and the American Venus Forum has been uh, quite good to uh, publish guidelines and up upgrade them, although uh, we need uh, a uh, uh, more recent Venus ulcer guidelines. We just uh, published a uh, uh, varicose vein guideline a couple of months ago, uh, but we have uh, quite a bit of guidance on how to treat patients with chronic venous insufficiency. These guidelines need upgrade uh, frequently, not only because we have a huge number of new venous ulcer treatments that are not interventionals, and we heard uh, excellent presentations even in this panel about many of these uh, uh, new uh, treatments that are available, but because there have been tremendous changes in uh, vascular reconstruction because of the endovascular revolution. And during the last two decades or so, uh, the, uh, the vein care has been changed uh, forever. We currently treat uh, patients with superficial venous disease in our office. And uh, here is just a list of the most popular and most frequently used endovenous uh, techniques, laser radiofrequency, uh, sclerotherapy with liquid and foam, uh, cyanoacrylate uh, glue and the MOCA procedures are just the procedures approved in this country. And there are several other procedures that are used in uh, Europe and other parts of the world uh, to treat uh, superficial venous disease that as you heard, includes 
not only a treatment of superficial truncal in, in, uh, incompetence and insufficiency, but also non-saphenous incompetence and perforator incompetence, because they all contribute to a dysfunction of the underlying venous system that uh, promotes uh, the development of uh, venous ulcerations. We have made huge uh, progress in the treatment of uh, deep venous obstruction, and we are uh, treating now for both acute and chronic venous disease um, uh, that cause obstruction with endovenous intervention, catheter-directed thrombolysis, mechanical thrombectomy increases the use of mechanical thrombectomy has increased every year uh, uh, with uh, um, uh, new technology uh, uh, very effectively uh, uh, clearing up acute occlusion of large veins, balloon angioplasty and stents are now quite frequent for both non-thrombotic and uh, thrombotic proximal uh, venous obstruction. We talked about the ESCAR trial, we talked about the EVRA trial, Dr. Mellin uh, uh, mentioned that we really have excellent evidence of uh, a prospective randomized study uh, that uh, tells us that we need to treat these patients early. We recommend compression therapy, of course, and early endovenous uh, ablation of uh, the superficial incompetent veins for uh, uh, primary treatment uh, of venous ulcers. And the EVRA trial really showed us that an early intervention is more effective uh, in healing. We knew that uh, intervention was effective in avoiding recurrence, but now we know that we can and should intervene in patients who have active ulcerations. Um, although we should treat infection first, but we should intervene early to improve the underlying chronic venous insufficiency. Uh, we also have uh, quite good uh, data about the efficacy of uh, uh, the endovascular treatment in not only uh, uh, healing ulcers, but also prevent uh, recurrence and uh, the uh, this systematic review that was published just uh, last year uh, found that somewhere between 2 and 20 percent uh, recurrence rate, depending on, of course, multiple factors that affect uh, uh, recurrence in patients uh, with venous ulceration. We know quite a bit from uh, the perforator uh, treatment uh, from the time when we used the SEPS procedure that we used quite frequently at Mayo Clinic. And we knew that in patients who have uh, ulcerations and who, who have incompetent uh, medial uh, uh, perforating veins at the ankle, treatment of these increases ulcer healing and decreases recurrence. We have made uh, major progress in uh, uh, the treatment, as I mentioned, uh, of uh, iliofemoral venous obstruction. It was interesting to note that more and more uh, as we study these patients with venous ulcerations, and now at Mayo Clinic, we routinely uh, study the iliofemoral 
system in patients who have uh, uh, non-healing or even uh, just delayed healing of uh, venous ulcerations. Uh, this was just an interesting paper that actually documented that more than 50% of the patients with venous uh, leg ulcers had non-thrombotic iliac uh, vein obstruction, what we call the May Turner syndrome. Um, uh, Peter Lorenz and his team has been uh, uh, doing quite a bit of research of looking into uh, uh, what we need to treat to uh, accelerate uh, uh, venous uh, ulcer healing. And uh, we know that uh, uh, truncal uh, ablation helps, but we also know that if we treat truncal uh, uh, incompetence and perforator incompetence, then we have uh, uh, faster and better healing. And if we treat uh, truncal incompetence, perforator incompetence, and associated iliofemoral venous obstructions, those are the uh, ulcers that actually uh, heal uh, the uh, fastest. So this is uh, my or our uh, team's strategy for venous ulcers. We try to establish the diagnosis of venous ulcers and obviously duplex scanning as we have repeatedly emphasized during this uh, session uh, is an extremely important uh, to uh, establish the uh, sta uh, status of uh, venous incompetence of the superficial perforating and the deep system. But also we heard about the, the uh, risk factors. Uh, we heard about the uh, importance to exclude uh, underlying arterial disease and uh, we need to complete our checklist as Dr. Mellin mentioned, looking at diabetes, vasculitis and other rare uh, ulcerations. Obviously compression treatment is uh, uh, you know, part of our uh, um, uh, immediate treatment and treatment of infection is extremely important. We heard uh, excellent presentation on what to use to uh, cleanse uh, and then uh, what kind of dressing do we need to apply. Uh, again, what you should keep in mind, consult your vascular uh, specialists uh, early because we want to treat uh, the underlying uh, incompetence, uh, uh, whether it is superficial or perforator early. And if the patient has associated deep venous obstruction, we certainly want to do that. And we can do it very effectively with uh, uh, a relatively low risk, but uh, uh, good clinical success. Occasionally, certainly at Mayo Clinic, we don't hesitate to do some kind of a venous bypass if the stenting fails and the patient has a significant uh, venous uh, obstruction. For non-healing, we study non-healing uh, uh, um, ulcers even more scrupulously. Uh, we want to repeat the duplex scanning to uh, look for new or recurrent reflux and we treat that. And then we heard the effectiveness of skin grafting and the bilayer cellular therapy for non-healing wound. So your, uh, my take home message to you is the best strategy to treat venous ulcer is confirm the right diagnosis, optimize the local care, uh, treat 
uh, the infection, initiate compression therapy and treat the underlying reflux and obstruction early to prevent and treat than if you have ulcer recurrence. I would like to thank you uh, very much for the opportunity to uh, share these thoughts with you. Thank you very much. I'm gonna introduce uh, Dr. Monica Glavitsky, who has not only an MD, but a PhD. She has uh, changed uh, so much of what I do for wound care patients by introduction into um, micronized purified flavonoid fractions, all the way from what a simply what a micronization process is, what a flavonoid is. And she is currently chief medical officer of Vitasupport MD and has uh, served at the Mayo Clinic uh, as well as in France. And with that, uh, Dr. Kulvitsky, I would like to uh, introduce you to uh, provide your talk and thank you for honoring us with your presence. Thank you very much. And thank you, uh, Wound Masterclass organizer, for this kind uh, invitation. Thank you, uh, Negan. So uh, this is my pleasure to, to present to you today the uh, uh, topic on systemic pharmacologic treatment and nutraceutical supplements for venous like ulcer. And these are my disclosures. Uh, so, first of all, I would like to underline the, uh, the fact that uh, indeed a venous like ulcer incidence has absolutely no tendency to decrease. And certainly it's the uh, uh, possibility that it is related to the aging population, but it's very striking. And you see, especially for individual over age 60 years, you have almost nine per 1,000 person year. Uh, incidents. Now, um, that was mentioned already by the previous speakers. We have uh, excellent guidelines uh, produced by the Society for Vascular Surgery and American Venus Forum. And the two societies with the support also by uh, Wound Care Society, because we had the participants coming from Wound Care uh, aspect. And uh, all uh, participants of this uh, committee admitted that nutrition assessment is necessary and should be performed in any patient with a venous like ulcer who has evidence of malnutrition and that nutritional uh, deficiency should be supplemented, should be treated if malnutrition is identified. And the, the most frequently deficiency found in patients with venous leg ulcers uh, were the uh, deficiency in vitamin A, E, carotene, protein, zinc, and others. Now, another uh, recommendation done by the uh, two society concerned systemic drug therapy. And, and uh, we agreed that for long-standing or large venous leg ulcers, we recommend treatment with either pentoxifiline or micronized purified flavonoid fraction. And I have to clarify here that pentoxifiline, in fact, is a, a drug used in arterial uh, insufficiency and the micronized purified flavonoid fraction uh, is a, a micronized uh, combination of diosmin 90% and hesperidine fraction. 
Wound Healing Society uh, followed those recommendations concerning the, uh, the uh, drug treatment, and they uh, indeed specified that uh, pentoxifiline used in conjunction uh, with compression therapy improves healing of venous ulcer, and that was level one. And for MPFF or micronized purified flavonoid fraction, oral treatment may be useful adjunct to a conventional compression therapy in the treatment of leg ulcers. And that was also the level one uh, recommendation. Very recently, uh, just last year, we had uh, a pleasure to see the European Society for Vascular Surgery Clinical Practice Guidelines on the global management of chronic venous disease of the lower limbs. And what we have seen with a pleasure that indeed all the uh, treatment with, uh, recommended for patients uh, with act, uh, active venous leg ulceration uh, really uh, evolved. And we have now in the algorithm of this treatment, we have now adjunctive pharmacotherapy added with the class uh, 2A recommendation. Now, uh, the uh, ESVS recommended for patients with active venous leg ulceration, micronized purified flavonoid fraction, hydroxyethylurutosides, pentoxifiline, or sulodexide, and uh, added that it should be considered as an adjunct to compression and local wound care to improve ulcer healing. Now, this is a, just a small illustration of a patient treated with wound care, compression, and micronized purified flavonoid fraction. This is photo, a photograph courtesy of Dr. Melin. Now, uh, we should see together what is the scientific evidence. Uh, scientific evidence that, that provided the, uh, the recommendation for all the, um, these uh, societies um, speaking for the uh, venous leg ulcer treatment. And, and we should have in mind that the level A evidence uh, is uh, meta-analysis and systematic review and randomized controlled trials and some prospectively collected registries. Uh, now the uh, level B, can, uh, can be the uh, randomized control trials, prospectively uh, uh, collected registry, case controlled studies, and retrospective cohort studies. And uh, level C concerns uh, case series, case reports, and expert opinions. And this is very important when we see uh, what we have in the literature. And indeed, when you when you uh, examine what is the evidence for nutrition and venous ulcer, ulcer healing, we found that just uh, this month, a very recent uh, systematic review, which, which stated that a deficit of nutrients such as vitamin, vitamin A, D, or zinc, and an excess of lipids and carbohydrates were found in the patient with venous leg ulcers. Another proof, the uh, uh, clinical study, uh, which uh, examined the effect of oral nutrition supplementation on patients with venous ulcers, 
found that indeed the, uh, the high calorie, high protein, immunonutrient enriched oral nutritional supplementation was beneficial in a patient with venous leg ulcer. Another, uh, another interesting systematic review, nutrient with antioxidant properties and their effect on lower limb ulcers. And this systematic review found that indeed omega-3 fatty acid, magnesium, vitamins A, C, D, and resveratrol with probiotics positively improved the ulcer healing. Now, let's see what we have as a, as a scientific evidence for uh, the drug treatment. And, Excellent example, of course, it's the micronized purified flavonoid fraction, MPFF. Now, uh, with just small comment about all this uh, class of the treatment, uh, MPFF is registered as a drug uh, in Europe and all over the world, but in the United States, uh, we don't have the uh, FDA approval and uh, MPFF is considered as a nutritional supplement. So this is a little bit confusing and we have to have it in, in mind. So for MPFF, the uh, scientific evidence that we have is a meta-analysis of adjunctive therapy with MPFF. And we have actually five randomized controlled trials with a significant effect on ulcer healing compared to control group and with significant uh, improvement as far as time to healing is concerned. And the difference is quite striking because in fact, you have practically over a month difference in the time to healing between MPFF and control group. Uh, we have also something very interesting. We have a cost effectiveness analysis, which showed that MPFF adjuvant therapy improved the cost effectiveness ratio by 45%. So it, it's truly very safe and economically very interesting. Now, what about pentoxifilin? The pentoxifilin, uh, actually uh, has a, a very interesting um, uh, Cochrane uh, review, which um, uh, concluded that pentoxifilin uh, is an effective adjunct to compression bandaging for treating venous ulcers and may be effective in the absence of compression. And the majority of adverse effects were gastrointestinal disturbances. We also have the uh, Cochrane review for flavonoids. And actually uh, that included MPFF study and uh, hydroxyethylurutosides uh, studies. And uh, the results were inconclusive despite uh, clear benefit in the uh, uh, healing uh, rate but the authors considered that some of these studies were having a poor reporting. 
what about sulodexite? Uh, sulodexite is the mixture of the uh, glucosaminoglycan uh, composed of low molecular weight heparin and dermatan sulfide. And uh, the uh, Cochrane review uh, concluded that sulodexate may increase the healing of venous ulcer when used alongside local wound care. However, the evidence is only low quality and the conclusion is likely to be affected by new research. So my conclusion after all this, that certainly nutritional supplements are indicated for patients with vitamins and minerals deficiencies. And that was really clearly um, demonstrated. And for venous leg ulcers, in addition to standard wound care and compression therapy, an adjunctive treatment with MPFF, pentoxifidin, hydroxyethylurotoside, and sulodexite was established in several RCTs, meta-analyses, and Cochrane's systematic reviews. And of course, we should follow the science because the good thing about the science is that it's true whether or not you believe in it. And with that, I thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Dr. Chafin, for joining us to talk to us about wound recuperation. <coughs> and the role for skin substitute grafting and autologous skin grafting. So we're really grateful for you to share your experience um, with your clinical cases. Great, well, thank you again uh, to Dr. Negan Shamsi and the Wound Masterclass Series organizers and the co-chairs, Dr. Mark Moline and Dr. Monica Globitsky for this invitation to join this esteemed panel. So as she mentioned, I'll be talking about wound bed preparation and role for skin substitute grafting and autologous skin grafting today. My disclosures are here. So overall, with U.S. chronic wounds, the prevalence of venous ulcers is seen here in the dark green at 7.58% for venous leg ulcers. Chronic wounds, as we all know, progress from hemostasis to inflammatory, proliferative, and remodeling phases, but wounds become a chronic wound if they're stalled in the inflammation phase and have not entered the proliferation phase after four weeks of standard of care therapy. VLUs account for up to 80% of the 2.5 million leg ulcer cases per year with an increased incidence in an ever-increasing elderly population. These costs are substantial from reduced quality of life, high frequency of hospitalizations, wound clinic visits, home health care, loss of time from work, with almost $15 billion annual cost in the U.S. So in that four weeks of standard of care, we want to see 50% reduction in wound size. If not, we may need to signal a change or additional therapies or skin substitute grafts. This is important because wound area reduction after four weeks is predictive of complete wound healing by 24 weeks. We need to follow guidelines and incorporate evidence-based modalities that lead to high, highest quality outcomes and appropriate resource utilization. And this really requires an integrated approach. Our goals are alleviating pain, rapidly healing the ulcer and preventing long-term sequela. This is my treatment algorithm for VLUs as a plastic surgeon, of course, starting with the standard compression, leg elevation, and then a thorough wound bed preparation with a sharp excisional debridement, a high consideration for bacterial and biofilm control with appropriate wound cleansers. In my practice, I use a pure hypochlorous acid preserved wound cleanser and management of exudate. 
early use of skin substitute grafts when appropriate for coverage of vital structures, dermal regeneration, and accelerating primary healing of small VLUs. In my practice, I use an ovine for stomach matrix graft. And then as a surgeon, when do I consider split thickness skin grafts for definitive coverage of the larger VLUs? So first, a few words about the pure hypochlorous acid preserved wound cleanser. This is the Bosch product at 300 parts per million. A really key point here is the pH range of three and a half to 5.5 is conducive to healing. This is not cytotoxic, unlike standard sodium hypochlorite solutions. Uh, this product reacts with organic matter in, in, in the wound in seconds and dissipates in seconds. So it's safe to use with skin substitute grafts in the same setting. For wounds that have a biofilm, you may wanna consider five to eight minutes of wound contact with the solution uh, combined with a sharp debridement. Uh, this is a very rapid process, does not require hours or long exposure like some other products. There's the references. So what's the data for this? Uh, some very recent consensus documents and guidelines suggest discontinuation of cytotoxic cleansing agents such as Dakin's or solutions that contain cytotoxic agents such as, hypo, such as chlorhexidine gluconate. A journal published last year, consensus guideline by some major US wound clinicians also discusses the use of hypochlorous acid versus sodium hypochlorite. In a key section, section 5.3, the issue of margin of safety is discussed at length. This is the therapeutic index. This paper shown in the previous slide looks at the cytotoxicity of cleansers via the lens of the therapeutic indices of the cleansing agent preservative molecule. Hypochlorous acid has a higher therapeutic index compared to the hypochlorite present in Dakin's, which is a higher effectiveness with a lower toxicity to the tissue. The hypochlorous acid molecule is naturally created inside our cells in these fluid-filled vesicles that ingest bacteria. This is how our body in homeostasis is able to fight germ entries through cuts and scrapes. So we are designed to live with hypochlorous acid in our cells, which helps explain why it's so non-cytotoxic. This was a study out of Vanderbilt University in their burn unit, looking at sulfamylon or methanide and biofilms in burn wound patients. This shows that the methanide solution had a flat curve. There was very little effect on biofilm as compared to the Bosch solution. So do not encourage drug resistance via meaningful use of antibiotics. And also, Mafinide was unable to remove Canada biofilms and Bosch was able to do it easily. This also shows that Bosch is able to kill planktonic germs in seconds in a biofilm situation, though it may be appropriate to soak the wound for five to eight minutes. The skin substitute graft I prefer is the ovine sheep for stomach matrix. The ECM technology AROA has developed. It is called AROA ECM. AROA identifies the four stomach of sheep in New Zealand as an ideal starting tissue to make advanced ECM technologies for soft tissue repair. This required years of research. This source tissue is highly abundant in New Zealand and the animals are disease free. It's from juvenile sheep, less than 12 months old, all raised in New Zealand to meet the international demands for New Zealand's high quality agricultural products. The four stomach, even of these young animals is very large, meaning large sheets of ECM can be easily manufactured. The four stomach is a highly vascular tissue designed for digestion. This helps with rapid nutrient absorption from the grafts. 
This also means that residual vascular channels in the graft help the graft revascularize more quickly. And then this tissue undergoes more rapid remodeling where soft tissues are continuously renewed in the body. This has a high concentration of secondary macromolecules that are known to be important for healing. This study of the ovine form stomach matrix graft in BLUs in 2017 showed that between quarters one and three, cellular or tissue-based graft unit usage in this study decreased by 60%, and expenditures on these grafts also decreased by 66% with a high rate of healing seen. So a few words, chronic wounds we find are missing a quality extracellular matrix. As you can see here, this is a very complex process of cells, blood vessels, and macromolecules. The matrix is important for structural and biochemical support. Chronic wounds often have deficient ECM, senescent fibroblasts, increased MMPs, and we need to consider enhancing the ECM with skin substitute grafts to more rapidly heal these ulcers. So what do I consider an ideal skin substitute graft? Something that affords us 100% or near 100% wound closure, a single application with rapid wound closure, long-term tissue durability, ideally inexpensive and easy to apply in the office setting, readily available with an ease of storage and transport. These are outcomes that many studies look at, number of percent of closed wounds, time to closure, wound recurrence or infection, need for amputation or hospitalization, patient return to baseline ADLs with pain reduction, odor and exudate reduction, and lack of other adverse effects. So when as a surgeon do I consider split thickness skin grafts for large venous ulcers? Patients that have failed to heal with standard of care, have a granulated wound base, no bone or tendon exposure, have minimal epithelialization seen, and I desire a high quality of skin coverage. This is my operative algorithm for split thickness skin grafts. Perform a thorough intraoperative ultrasonic debridement with a dilute pure hypochlorous acid solution, sharp debridement with a curette, ovine four stomach matrix coverage if indicated for exposed structures. A split thickness skin graft is usually harvested from the anterior thigh at 0.5 millimeters of thickness with tumescent solution to limit bleeding. The graft is stapled or sutured in place with a thrombin sealant as well. And then my standard dressing protocol is a non-adherent silver silicone dressing with negative pressure wound therapy, appropriate four or five layer compression wrap dressings, and then a mobilization at the ankle or knee as indicated. For the most complex patients, they're often admitted and put on bed rest, and some require an LTAC stay for optimal take of the graft. And of course, compression and patient education of compression for life. The first case is a 67-year-old male with chronic venous disease, three failed CTP applications for VLU and a failed skin graft referred to our center. Here he is with the failed graft. We are planned for intraclinic weekly debridement and placement combined for stomach matrix. Here you can see the product on the right applied to the wound. And at one week, there is residual graft in the wound. Uh, this is not slough and should not be debrided. And we continued weekly application of the graft. And as you can see by week 24, this wound that had been so recalcitrant is fully epithelialized and healed. The second case is a 66-year-old female with a four-year history of VLU, compliant with compression and weekly debridements, also had irrigation with PHA solution. Here we have a clean granulated wound with minimal epithelium. So I applied the protocol with the skin graft application, and here she is at three weeks healed for staple removal. The next case is a 65-year-old gentleman here in Louisiana. We have a lot of fishermen and had a catfish spine through his leg. He 
had a history of BLU, hypertension and diabetes, and had a necrotizing soft tissue injury de develop. He was referred to me from the LTAC hospital with this injury, extensive injury and loss of soft tissue and crucial structures on the foot and leg and necrotic fat on the dorsal foot. So after debridement had exposed dorsal extensor tendons, I applied the ovine four stomach matrix Myriad More Cells product to obtain coverage over this region. And then the ovine four stomach matrix Myriad Matrix product over the remainder of the wound to help achieve this dermal regeneration coverage. And at two weeks, we're seeing early granulation tissue budding through the graft. At 13 weeks in the LTAC setting for four weeks in the outpatient setting is fully granulated with an excellent contour restoration. And here's our skin graft. Here is at one week post-operative with full take of the graft. And at three weeks, the staples are out, full take of the graft, may, uh, improved quality of life and education for compression for life. Lastly, we occasionally have patients present with venous gangrene. This is a lower leg. This patient was immediately admitted to the hospital with an inpatient wound team consult. Vascular surgery performed a venoplasty for improved outflow, performed operative debridements of an 1800 square centimeter wound twice with the PHA solution and sharp debridement. Here she is after the first debridement, we're seeing some improvement, but you can see the sheer magnitude of these wounds and the limb threatening nature. Here's our installation inpatient negative pressure wound therapy with the PHA solution. Uh, she was sent to the LTAC for our coordinated team. One month, IV antibiotics, five-layer compression therapy, negative pressure, and was sent back to me then with a wound 662 square centimeters for skin grafting. Transferred back to the LTAC for three more weeks for the same protocol, and then had a wound resolved. Was transitioned to outpatient care. I'm the medical director for the MedCentris Wound Healing Institutes here in New Orleans. And we use a comprehensive team-based approach at three months on the right, fully healed. And this is the most amazing thing. This patient went on to have a new lease on life, lost 150 pounds, and has um, you know, regained the will to live, all from a venous ulcer and venous gangrene that was difficult to treat. So thank you again to the organizers for the invitation to speak today. Thank you very much, Dr. Chafin, for such an excellent talk. And it's really impressive to see how good your clinical results are with the use of that combination um, of VASH and ECM, well, basically ovine for stomach. Abby, thank you for that excellent uh, talk on how to manage wound beds and to get full coverage. In respect, in uh, as uh, we look back at the seminar today, I just, I, I want to thank um, Abby, I want to thank Dr. Monica Glavitsky, Professor Peter Glavitsky, uh, Dr. Lee Rotsi and uh, Negan, Sam Sain, and your entire team for sponsoring today's Wound Masterclass seminar. It's It's been exceptional. Um, we've learned a lot, and we look forward to the live question shortly. Thank you. Um, can I just start by asking a question? In relation to, obviously, the notorious challenge of treating venous ulceration in terms of reconstruction. What do you think there is about the properties of this ECM that actually, do you think there's a fire break layer? Or what do you think it is about um, this uh, ovine for stomach that leads to such excellent results than just grafting alone? So then comparing to just to SDSG alone, what, what's different about this ECM that gives you such amazing results that you've shown us? 
Sure, thank you for the question. I think for these patients with these exposed structures like tendons or a significant volumetric defect, it helps us achieve a robust granulation. And I think this is likely due to the source of the tissue being highly vascular with the residual channels. Uh, it's a very, um, uh, it's a structure that's very uh, used to a hostile environment of digestive enzymes. And so it seems to behave well in these wounds that we know have a significant biofilm and are difficult to heal. It may just be the ideal tissue for this difficult problem. Thank you very much, Dr. Chafin. Um, I'll hand over to our co-chairs to see if there are any other questions from the rest of the panel. Uh, I have a question. Have, it, have you ever tried uh, to this uh, very difficult uh, cases uh, with uh, extensive wounds, the, uh, any of the uh, venoactive drugs uh, that could improve potentially microcirculation and have a, a significant anti-inflammatory uh, action? No, I haven't. And one of the reasons I was excited about this panel is to learn more about how to further integrate this approach. Thank you. Abby, I just have um, uh, one thing. I, I think it's it's worth making uh, a point of with your your grafting of venous leg ulcers and the importance of maintaining volume and edema reduction of the leg uh, following grafting. What what do you use typically after um, after your split thickness skin grafting? What do you use for uh, compressive therapy? Absolutely. So I um, immediately after surgery, after the negative pressure is applied, I would apply a four or five layer compression wrap. If I have access to the Ergo K2 wrap, which has the compression of a four layer with two layer, I'll apply that. That is typically continued in the clinic setting. Uh, then we usually apply a Compraflex wrap on top, potentially as layer five for their long-term compressive control. And if I can get venous edema leg pumps authorized for the patient, they use that as well twice a day. I think we all know the biggest struggle is the recurrent ulcers due to recurrent edema. And so patient education is so crucial that they need edema for life or they may be back to square one. And we really have an integrated approach to making sure that message is very clear. Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Chafin. Can I ask you a question in relation to the contour um, of the post-reconstruction, so the aesthetic outcome of your reconstruction? Um, mm -hmm. Have you, in your experience, compared to split thickness grafting alone, have you noticed using the ECM um, layer has given you a better contour in terms of the overall end result? I think so. If you look at the, the gentleman with the catfish injury, he had a significant one centimeter contour deficit. And although that tissue was viable and could have tolerated an early skin graft, I think we have much more robust coverage and an excellent cosmetic result by utilizing a staged approach with the matrix with negative pressure to have a really, hopefully, much more robust and cosmetically pleasing result in the end. Abigail, a wonderful presentation and a really impressive result. Uh, results. Uh, I'm a vascular surgeon, so I'm wondering if you are working with vascular surgeons and uh, whether these patients that you treat really uh, undergo uh, evaluation by a vascular team and maybe uh, uh, some interventions to uh, treat the underlying uh, uh, venous problems. Absolutely. For that venous gangrene patient, again, she was immediately admitted and vascular surgery was consulted, which performed an endovascular 
venoplasty. So as we all know, no flow, no go, improve the inflow, improve the outflow. Uh, and occasionally that's done outpatient or inpatient, uh, depending on the appropriateness of the setting. But I think it would be uh, ideal to optimize that before grafting, or we will have a failure of the graft. Um, could I start with a question about MPFF? Um, just to talk to you a little bit about, from your experience, how does MPFF affect the actual symptoms of CVD? Well, here I'm sitting next to Monica Glavitsky, who's the international expert with MPFF. So I'm going to take a quick uh, offering at this, and I'm going to ask Monica to chime in as well, because she knows this literature and has contributed literature uh, in its totality. So in terms of micronized purified flavonoid fractions contributing to chronic venous disease, it helps decrease inflammatory markers of ICAM, VCAM, PCAM. It helps to moderate venous tone. So we have improved venous tone. It's actually one of the reasons why this is a standard of care in Europe for actual treatment of hemorrhoids. Um, and then we see decreased inflammation. And so all of those components then lead to decreased interstitial edema because it also helps us in terms of modulating lymphatic functionality. So by uh, taking an MPFF, we see not just the localized impact on a venous leg ulcer, but I think we get then the holistic systemic uh, benefits as well. And it's an incredibly safe uh, option. It, it's sourced from orange rinds. There's, there's uh, unless you have a citrus allergy, there's really not a contraindication. Side effects are minimal. Uh, you might get a little GI upset in the rare case, and there are not uh, uh, drug interactions. It's uh, it's a component that we use. We've been using consistently in our wound clinic for over three years, and um, so I, I see a lot of a lot of upsides and very little downside in this aspect. And I'm going to ask Monica to, to uh, uh, chime in and and add her thoughts as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Mark uh, really summarized very well all the uh, um, pharmacologic properties of uh, micronized purified flavonoid fraction. The only thing I could add, and this is spe uh, specifically in relation to, to Mark's uh, slide with the uh, glycocalyx and uh, all the, uh, the chain reaction linking the, uh, the uh, NO synthetized, uh, synthetized and, and uh, production of the uh, um, uh, reactive oxygen species and all the catastrophic uh, uh, complication when you have the uh, oxidative stress uh, applied to, to endothelium that, that uh, uh, MPFF acts specifically uh, as a uh, antioxidant in this regard. And uh, that, uh, that is maybe uh, connected also to the anti-inflammatory uh, reaction, uh, but uh, it, it has really multiple facets uh, in regard to venous leg ulcers. And um, additionally, but we will talk about it later, uh, there is a very solid uh, clinical proof of the efficacy. Thank you very much to Mark and uh, Monica for that really good explanation about MPFF. And if I may just start with, um, you mentioned biopsy early and biopsy often, but typically in your practice, sort of what percentage of patients that you treat uh, generally have a biopsy and sort of which types of patients are you more likely to biopsy earlier? Because um, I know this will be a question for the, for the audience that's watching today. Sure. Well, um, 
you know, I think first of all, if if somebody presents with a wound that looks like a cutaneous malignancy, then there's really no sense going any further. Those are the patients that I will biopsy on the initial visit. Now, granted, those are um, those are really few and far between. Um, the other cases, you know, we will we'll typically treat a wound conservatively with hopefully appropriate standard of care. But if that if that wound fails to make reasonable progress uh, within certainly six to eight weeks, then I think that's a good reason and a good time to biopsy. Um, and and I, I think the other important thing, when we biopsy atypical skin lesions, it's important to make the request for that specimen to go to a dermatopathologist for somebody to, to somebody who looks at unusual skin things all day. Because uh, all too often, if this goes to you know, one, one of our, our regular hospital pathologists, and certainly no offense intended here, um, but oftentimes the result will come back, well, this looks like a chronic ulcer. But the derm dermatopathologists are trained to look for those unusual characteristics that we might see with pyoderma gangrenosum. And again, it's so important to, to give our pathology colleagues some clue of what we're looking for. At least tell them that this is an atypical lower extremity wound and we suspect a malignancy or something else. That's great advice. And I'll pass over to Dr. Milin uh, and Dr. Glowitsky to see if there's any other questions from the panel. Only I just want to make three points. First of all, thank you for uh, participating today. And you know, I, I'm just going to put in a plug for the American Venus Lymphatic Society Union of International Phlebology meeting that's going to occur in September down in Miami. And we had Lee present at New Orleans last year. Uh, both he and uh, his wife Dot Weir will be present uh, for a hands-on workshop coming up in September. So Lee, Lee thank you for being present. Uh, the biopsy and dermatopathology. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that's a, uh, such a critical point. Um, the other point you brought up with that's really important is that cellulitis versus inflammatory changes. There was a very good article in the British Germ uh, uh, Journal of Dermatology, I think in 2018, 2019, that looked at that admission rate. And this should be, again, a no miss. And you're an expert, as is DOT, in biofluorescence technology. You know, Moleculite does such a great job. I'd love to see that technology in ERs to help us differentiate the diagnosis so we can appropriately treat. And I think that goes to antibiotic stewardship because the inflammatory conditions we should not be treating with a pick line and antibiotics they need topical steroids lymphatic uh, management etc and then the other thing i just want to put in a plug for wound education you know lee lee changed my life about what four years ago in detroit lee when you and dot were given that that uh, really good education on wound care and i thought i knew something about wound care and i walked away from there with a new vision a new understanding of wound care and details that just helped me really accelerate my practice so i just wanted to thank you and uh, dot again for all the time you spend in educationally uh mark that's uh you're you're too kind as uh as always but uh it's uh it's certainly fun to be a part of the process. Uh, so my question for you would be, 
how often do you see the uh, the mixed uh, ulcers? So, like uh, the the case of phlebo lymphedema, so venous and lymphatic disease, or the uh, venous disease and arterial disease. Wow. Thanks, Monica. This is one of the problems with trying to do this uh, in 11 minutes. I, I, I really struggle to know what to leave out. So uh, on, the, on the venous side, uh, certainly that uh, sort of transition period of chronic venous insufficiency, uh, phlebolymphedema, lipodermatosclerosis, we see that with, with really uh, uh, remarkable frequency. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, we still, we will always start with multi-layer compression, but we try to get these people, once we get their wounds closed, we try to get them to appropriate lymphedema management, which we, we have good access and good quality uh, practitioners in our community, uh, but we have to get the wounds closed before, uh, before we can get them there. On the mixed side with arterial venous, that's uh, another really interesting point because I think depending on which literature you read, uh, lower extremity ulcers that are thought to be venous ulcers, uh, probably uh, 25 to 35% of those are of mixed etiology, arterial and venous, which uh, uh, the reason I think it's so, uh, so important to do that uh, at least cursory arterial workup before you commit a patient to multi-layer compression. We even, you know, people with mixed ulcers, we know that they need compression. The question is how much compression? Back in 2011, uh, uh, Bill Marston published a, a really good paper on this topic exactly, how much to compress in the venous leg ulcer. And, uh, you know, it's sort of like the, the, you know, the Goldilocks thing, how much is, just right, uh, and that's that's a tough question. But uh, we can certainly easily make an ischemic leg more ischemic um, with inappropriate compression. And Lee, you bring up a really important point because, in addition to Bill doing such great work, um, Hugo Parch, Giovanni Mosti, Harvey Mayorovich down at Northeastern University have all or Northwest uh, Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale have all published really good information on this paradoxical component of compression. It applies not just to venous leg ulcers and mix, but if we also think about diabetics. And you had shown a total contact cast. I think one of the most significant components about a total contact cast is not just offloading. You and I see significant edema reduction in those patients. Right. So right. I think edema reduction in a DFU is also maximizing microvascular flow. And we can even take those mixed venous ulcers. And, you know, it'd be great to have some biosensors and some other things to know how to do it in patient education, get the, get the two-layer wrap-off or four-layer wrap-off if there's an issue. But paradoxically, again, we're improving that microvascular flow with adequate compression, improving lymphatic function, and that's what's helping the wound to heal. We just need better technology for feedback in some of these more complex patients to accomplish this. Exactly, exactly. So, um, and, um, you know, we... we Another another reason 
to do that arterial workup in the diabetic foot ulcer because we know that one of the contraindications to total contact casting is the ischemic foot. And, you know, the, it was taught for so long that we should never compress a diabetic foot. But yet we know now that compression of an adequately vascularized diabetic foot improves microvascular flow and improves improves healing. So yeah, great, great point. Thank you. Well, and in 80% in of the DFUs that we're dealing with, it's a neuro, neuropathic issue that's, that's driving the ulceration. But again, that doesn't discount every one of those lymphatic or every one of those diabetic patients has underlying lymphatic dysfunction that we can treat systemically, holistically, as well as with the total contact cast. So despite the fact that total contact cast is deemed as the standard of care, you and I know it's used in probably less than 10% of wound clinics in the United States. Yeah, right. And again, that's where this technology component ideally would help give us reassurances to maximize standard of care management uh, in limb preservation. Right. Uh, Lee, uh, I just want to congratulate you for your excellent presentation. Uh, looking at all these zebras, you know, the uh, unusual ulcerations, uh, I couldn't help uh, uh, recalling uh, uh, the story uh, at Mayo Clinic that uh, I, I heard from Carl uh, uh, Lofgren, who was part of the team, uh, of the great uh, vein team of T.T. Myers, Carl and Eric Lofgren, who uh, were treating uh, uh, a large number of patients with ulcerations. And they actually described first hypertensive ulcers. Oh, right, yeah. And, and uh, Martorell came to Mayo Clinic. Uh, they showed him a, a couple of patients. Martorell went back home to Spain, published a case. So ever since that time, hypertensive ulcers described by Titi Myers and Carl Lockgren is called Martorell's ulcer. Right, <laughs> so, right. Uh, you know, I thought, uh, you know, we should keep this, uh, this story known to the world uh, that Mayo Clinic has a history of vein uh, disease treatment that dates back to 1923. And we are going to celebrate this year, 100 year anniversary of vascular medicine at Mayo and many of these, uh, you know, uh, rare ulcerations have been treated uh, uh, very effectively by great people uh, way, you know, behind us. Uh, Peter, I'm delighted to hear that story because I, I knew that these were called Martorell's ulcers, but I did not know why, and I certainly didn't know the story behind them. So I, I should probably rename this talk Horses versus Zebras. <laughs> Dr. Glavitsky, thank you. Um, you know, I, I made the comment to Lee that Lee's influenced many nationally as well as internationally in terms of wound care education. And of course, in my time as a vascular fellow at Mayo, you've, you've influenced not only me, but you know, hundreds of individuals in their vascular surgery skill set, uh, really compassionate care for humans. And uh, thank you again for everything you've done from an educational standpoint, both nationally as well as internationally and continue to do. Um, the, one of the references that you discussed, and I, I look at Lee as the American Board of Wound Medicine Surgery representative, and we have this gap between wound care and vascular care. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about how do we close that gap and how do we help our colleagues in the wound clinics 
recognize the importance of getting our vascular surgery colleagues in immediately to help manage these difficult patients. And that, uh, you know, I hear too many people say, well, uh, these patients stay in the wound clinic because it's an annuity for the wound clinic. I think Lee and I would both say that's not true at all. It's, it's establishing these connections between vein clinics, vascular surgery, and wound clinic. And if we can bridge this gap, I think we can really start to have an impact on incidents. And Monica, of course, did the Olmstead County um, epidemiology product, and we still see the incidents rising. I think this gap is important to help close to have an incidence on, or to have an impact ultimately on these healing rates and recidivism rates. So Mark, you uh, bring up a very important point. And uh, uh, I have to say, uh, you know, Lee mentioned uh, Bill Marston's uh, name. Uh, you know, Bill was instrumental to uh, actually collaborate with the, the uh, Wound Care Society when we wrote with Monica uh, being one of the leader in the uh, Venus Ulcer project. And she can tell more about that. But uh, as you know, well, at Mayo Clinic, we are uh, truly, uh, uh, team players, and we have a multidisciplinary uh, wound care center that Tom Rook and colleagues uh, uh, have, uh, you know, uh, practically uh, uh, took care or have taken care of for a couple of decades now. So uh, I think it is very important, and uh, you know that's why I asked uh, Abby before too to you know, how much do they work together? I think the work has to be, has to start by writing joint guidelines. It is very important that we really treat these patients according to a common principle that we, we, we vascular surgeons provide the best wound care and the wound care people provide the best uh, vein care by either doing the procedure or uh, involving uh, uh, appropriate uh, vein specialists to uh, treat these patients. So I think uh, clearly to me, uh, venous ulcers, just like the diabetic uh, foot has to be handled by teams, multidisciplinary teams. And Lee, I'm going to have you put on your hat as a board of director member for the American Board of Wound Medicine Surgery, and of course, with Richard Simone, who's a colleague at the Toledo Center with, with, uh, with Bador Lurie, you know, all the elements are in place to bring this together. And I, I would love to hear your, your perspective on the opportunity. <laughs> Here's another hour-long conversation, right? Uh, so I, I think... Um, you know, the, the, the word multi or the, the term multidisciplinary team is used so much. And I think it's, it's overused. And I, I think the critical piece, and, and Peter and you have, have, you know, both voiced this, we need to have an interdisciplinary team. We actually have to have a group that works together. And I, I think, you know, a model that has worked really well for me in the past, the 10 years that I was with Catholic Health in Buffalo, I had a wonderful vascular colleague, fellowship trained endovascular and vascular surgery. He spent a half a day in my clinic with me every week so that every patient with either a venous or arterial problem was seen by Roger 
uh, at that next visit, given that it wasn't, uh, you know, an urgent thing. So we had that connection. I also had podiatry in-house. So, you know, we, we actually had a team that worked together face-to-face, -face, saw these people together sometimes, um, and that worked really well in, in terms of getting uh, folks the appropriate intervention in a timely fashion. Now, the, the, the next thing I'll point out quickly is that for a number of years, Roger and I approached this uh, you know, with a, with a venous ulcer, uh, for instance, that uh, we would, we, you know, I'd get the ulcer closed with multi-layer compression, and then he would do the intervention. But um, uh, Peter's uh, presentation ju just uh, pointed out something that, you know, I, I became more aware of maybe a little more than a year ago. And now with, with our team at, uh, in Saratoga Springs, we're, we're trying to get uh, to a point where if I see somebody as a new patient with chronic venous insufficiency, that we get them in early for intervention and then follow that with multi-layer compression therapy. So that's sort of been a, a little bit of a paradigm shift uh, uh, for me, this issue of early intervention, but I've seen some of, uh, some of that literature and gosh, it's pretty compelling. So I'm gonna I'm just gonna make a plug again for American Venus Forum coming up in February of this year down in San Antonio, the American Venus Lymphatic Society and Union of International Phlebology Media in Miami in September. And I think these are grand opportunities to have like-minded individuals connect and develop. And I love that word, uh, Lee, interdisciplinary approaches. And I, I keep sharing with my colleagues in wound care, most don't know about SCAR and Ever. They just don't know the data. And there's grand educational opportunities to highlight these uh, um, uh, really well done studies so that we can take advantage of the data to improve patient outcome. Monica, thank you for that uh, excellent presentation. And I, I love that you end with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's of course the gentleman that had the science with the team to prove that Pluto was no longer a planet. And I know a lot of people that was upsetting to but it's the truth. And it, it's so important to, to look at the truth and the integrity. When I look at the Cochrane study that you discussed from 2013, specifically on MPFFs, there is, there's a host of evidence from Europe before that. There's a lot of evidence since. Where do you, and of course, we've got the, the um, uh, vascular guidelines to look at. How do you put this into context with these types of reviews, and then how do we then integrate that into our practice if we want to practice truth and integrity, as you, you discuss? Well, first of all, I think that I, I, I don't agree with the uh, pulling, you know, several uh, molecules uh, together in the, uh, in the uh, establishment of the uh, uh, scientific evidence because like uh, hydroxyethylglutosides are different uh, component than MPFF and like a Cochrane review for globally for the uh, venoactive drugs uh, tended to really the mixed uh, all mm -hmm. the uh, um, all the different medication and uh, Finally, you don't know what to do with these conclusions because some of the studies are good, some of the studies are not good. And when you mix different uh, uh, 
molecules with different properties, uh, it's hard to establish some uh, really valuable conclusions. So, so that's, uh, that's, that's one point. And uh, certainly, you know, the, uh, the other point is that uh, there is a huge gap in the timing of the studies. And what were the requirements for the clinical study in the late 1880s? Uh, it's not requirement for the uh, clinical study now. And the reporting was different. And the, the, uh, the uh, scientific papers were written differently. Certainly, uh, you know, right now we tend to put every single detail about the uh, uh, about the studies, and this is a, a, always a very complete report. Uh, now, this is not true about the studies done in the uh, uh, 90s, and uh, uh, that were, however, a very good studies. So, um, I, I mean, that, that is my reserve about the uh, Cochrane's review. And of course, you've got the privilege of having participated in some of these really pivotal European studies in France. Um, and having those insights to share is incredibly helpful for all of us. Like, you know, Lee and I just didn't get a lot of education in wound care about MPFFs, their pleiotropic effects. One thing that you've really opened my eyes to is diosmin. And that if you find a uh, something that has diosmin in it, not all diosmins are equivalent. So can you share with us how to know what the best product to get is in wound care that is the diosmin that's in the publications that will benefit our patients? So um, um, the important thing is to be based, based on the, uh, what was done as a comparative studies. Uh, and what was done that in fact diasmin is, is working, you know, that has a very nice properties and there's nothing wrong with diasmin, but uh, the uh, association of uh, other uh, component like in MPFF with hesperidine and other flavonoids plus micronization of the, this whole uh, uh, conglomerate of the flavonoids uh, it's precious. It's precious and it shows uh, because the, uh, it doubles the absorption and the absorption of uh, flavonoids, it's always a, a trouble. This is a very variable fa uh, factor and, uh, and uh, always, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the percent absorbed is a very low for flavonoids. So now with micronization, you have practically double absorption. That's the one point. And the fact is that all component of the hesperidine fraction reinforce the diosmine uh, activity. And uh, when you see in uh, the impact on the uh, clinical effic efficacy, it's practically, I would say that from the studies that we, we have done, it's like 30 up to 40% more efficacy. So really the key word is bioavailability. There's no sense in purchasing something that's not gonna be systemically absorbed and or utilized. Less. Yes, that, that is an excellent summary. Yeah, and, and I would like to add something because certainly you are not 
uh, you are not aware of the, uh, the performance uh, of the randomized clinical uh, trials for drugs now in Europe. This is very strict procedure. There is nothing uh, you can uh, you can do, you know, to cheat about the result. Or the, the, from the very beginning, the protocol is deposited. You have to follow the protocol. You have the control. You have the audits. Uh, you have the uh, all the database is locked. Uh, and you cannot touch it even. You know, I was uh, a PI of several uh, studies. I had no access to the uh, to the data of the uh, of the study. The, the the only person that has access is the statistician with the team. Uh, you have really such a rigor in proceeding and controlling those studies that uh, I think that all this image that uh, um, uh, the studies about the, uh, the drug efficacy can be manipula uh, manipulated is totally false. Thank you. And I, I, I so appreciate that study. Um, Monica, that was so enlightening for me. And I want to ask, I think, a, a simple question. Um, I, I, I have always been a, uh, a strong proponent of nutritional supplementation and, you know, the vitamins A, C, D, and, and uh, zinc and so forth. But I, uh, I admit that I have not been using um, uh, the uh, purified uh, flavonoid fractions. So um, could you just briefly outline, and if I missed this, I'm sorry, but briefly outline any adverse or potential adverse events or drug interactions um, with the micronized purified flavonoid fractions? There is uh, no drug interaction. And, uh, and for the uh, side effects, uh, the most frequently you have the uh, gastrointestinal uh, disorders, and that's why the, uh, the the very good advice is to tell patient to take in, uh, to take it with the uh, principal meal of the day because taking it uh, with the meal uh, decreases the uh, the frequency of the side effects. And um, uh, well, the, there is no practically no. Uh, toxicity, uh, you know, the, in the uh, whole uh, experimental studies, you know, the dosage to uh, the, the, uh, uh, provoke the, uh, the toxicity is the, uh, is the dose of the uh, drug to explode the stomach of the animal. So that gives you the uh, image how safe it is. Sure, sure, and and uh, and no uh, no adjustment in dosage for impaired renal function because so so many of our patients also have some degree of renal failure. So uh, actually, that's very beneficial. So we have now um, some very interesting studies on diosmin and hesperidine, proving that uh, actually these components are very good for. Uh, several uh, uh, things, not only for veins, but also for the renal function, for the hepatic function, that has some protective effect because simply uh, it has anti-inflammatory uh, uh, effect and, uh, and has effect on the 
microcirculation practically all over our body. Oh, fantastic. So, so there is no, no, no adjustment. The, the only adjustment that I would advise uh, if you deal with the uh, the very obese patients, because then the dosage recommended of uh, 1,000 milligram, you know, uh, which is the for for somebody with the normal body weight, um, should be probably increased to uh, uh, 2,000 milligram per day. Well. Mark, as uh, you know, you and I have discussed so many times, we, we should always give folks something they can take back to the clinic and use on Monday. So uh, Monica, thanks. You've given me something to take back and use on Monday. Thank you very much to this very distinguished global panel. It's really a great honor for Wind Masterclass to host one one event with so many world experts that you know we've read so much of what you've done in your clinical practice over the years and to meet you all virtually is is a real honor for us and we thank you again um, and our viewers um, have been interacting with us and if you have any other questions please use the live chat and then we're very happy to go on to any other questions from the from the audience thank you very much to all of you